Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jesse Sanders. Jesse is the current president of the American Association of Fish Veterinarians and the owner of Aquatic Veterinary Services located in California. Hey, Jesse, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this podcast. Absolutely. So when you started vet school, did you see yourself one day owning a fish-only practice? When I started vet school, I didn't even know that this type of practice existed. I figured that I would end up being an aquarium veterinarian. Before veterinary school, I did a lot of volunteer work at Mystic Aquarium. It was very close to where I was doing my undergrad program at the University of Rhode Island. So I figured I'd be going down that path. I didn't really know this specialty existed until I attended the Aquavet program after my second year of veterinary school. I got to meet Dr. Helen Sweeney. She is a private practitioner up in upstate New York that has a small animal exotics clinic and also has a mobile fish practice. So she was really the one who got me started down this path to private practice aquatic veterinary medicine. Since there really wasn't established fish-only practice field, what were some of the struggles that you faced to start that, and how did you overcome that? So thankfully, Dr. Sweeney was very helpful in kind of getting me started with what kind of equipment I needed, what kind of labs I needed to get. Um, And my father, who had started his own uh, software company, was great about, you know, you're going to need an accountant, you're going to need a lawyer, you're going to need to set up this business properly. So I really had the two of them starting out. The main challenge that I have and continue to have is marketing and making the general pet owning public aware that aquatic veterinarians exist in general. There's a big preconceived notion out there that no vet will touch a fish, which is absolutely not true. So that's really the main continuing struggle that I've had throughout my career. So how do you get your message out there then? So it's been a lot of trial and error. Really, our website is where most people find us. I have worked constantly for seven years now, making sure that that has appropriate content so that we get picked by search engines. We do outreach to the local koi dealers. There are koi shows, so basically beauty pageants for fish. There are six of them in California, and we've had a booth, done outreach, and I have built a koi out of flowers on a float and floated it down the local river, which got us absolutely no new clients. But I guarantee that if there is some marketing idea, we have tried it. You didn't get a single new person for your flowered koi? Nope. Wow. I would have come just for that. Yeah. Well. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about aquatic veterinary services. How does it operate? What type of patients do you see? So Aquatic Veterinary Services has always been a mobile veterinary practice. I think mobile practices work better for fish because you don't have to rely on owners to catch the fish and then transport them, which unfortunately, if done improperly, is going to stress a fish out and really make any disease processes worse. So by me coming to their house, and if it's an indoor tank or an outdoor pond, Basically, all the fish will come out and be sedated in a little tub, and that way I can actually get a good hands-on physical exam. And obviously, just like doing a minimum database with blood work, heart, respiratory work, it's a little hard to do that with fish. So we rely a lot on water chemistry, testing 
typical ammonia, nitrite, nitrate, pH, KH, and temperature. And the best way to get reliable results is to do it yourself on site. What type of patients do you see? About 85% of our clientele are koi owners. So koi are essentially large ornamental carp that live outside. They can get very big. I've seen one up to 32 inches. A lot of homeowners, if they're retired, it's very hard for them to take the fish out and actually see what's going on. So let's see, that's 85%. And then maybe 14% is going to be goldfish. Those little fancy, cute, little adorable goldfish have more health issues than pugs. And then the last 1% is betas, tropicals, and saltwater fish. So you mentioned water quality, which I think is something people don't necessarily realize is so critical for having a fish as a pet. Can you talk a little bit more about that and other things that people may not recognize are critical in caring for a pet fish? Yes. Water quality is the most important thing that any pet fish owner can do to make sure that their pet stays healthy. So similar to the air that we breathe, a fish swimming around in terrible water is going to be essentially in a chronic stress environment that leads to decreased growth, decreased reproduction, and decreased immune function. So having terrible water leads to more bacterial infections, parasite infections, and basically makes a fish very vulnerable. So the most important thing that any veterinarian can do when seeing a fish client is to make sure that you always check the water chemistry. And there are many different tests. Those little test strips that you get for hot tubs, those are completely useless. You have to use a liquid-based test kit. There are many that are available that are halfway decent. Obviously, if you spend a little bit more money, you can get a better test kit. But certainly, yes, water quality, making sure that your fish is in an appropriate environment. So making sure you don't have your fish in that little bowl that people used back in the dark ages, that your tank actually has a filter. If they're tropical fish like a beta, they need a heater. And being fed an appropriate diet is, is also very important. One that's fresh, too. So what do you recommend then for somebody who you know, goes to the pet store, gets a beta or a goldfish, and they're, the people at the pet store suggest that they buy the little, you know, the, the flakes and stuff. What do you suggest that people feed to beta in fish like goldfish? So um, uh, flakes, unfortunately, go rancid faster just because they have a higher surface to mass ratio. So you take a, a nice little pellet and you flatten it out. And you're going to have, you know, more vitamin C loss and other water-soluble vitamins. And they make pellets very, very small these days. They're called micro-extruded pellets. And they're tiny enough where you can feed them to betas, you can feed them to goldfish. We do see a lot of problems with overfeeding beta fish. If they have pellets, they will eat them. And if they don't pass fast enough, especially if the water is too cold, they really need warm water for proper metabolism, as do all fish because they're ectotherms. It's really important that you don't overfeed them so they don't have a big ball of poo that just can't move down the track. Do most of the clients you work with recognize these things before you speak with them? No. <laughs> so a lot of my job is educating my clients. I always encourage them, they're welcome to watch every aspect of the appointment. I encourage them to ask as many questions as they want. I, I'm there to teach them and make them better pet fish owners. So a lot of them are completely oblivious to 
what water chemistry is. And a lot of the time that'll be part of a review. I'll, I'll give them a written copy of, okay, these are where your values are at. These are where they should be. And this is how you correct them. And obviously we'll do the same with the diet and any maintenance that they undergo on a regular basis. If it's say a big system that needs a backwash or just how to properly clean your filters, go, go a long way in making sure that their fish will be healthy throughout the year. And you're based in California, but since it's mobile, how far will you travel? So before the virus hit, I was actually going down to Southern California. This is packing everything up and putting it on a plane at least once or twice a month in the summer months. Unfortunately, we're now kind of restricted to what I can drive. So right now we're covering Sonoma down to Fresno and then out to uh, Sacramento. So I am also licensed in Nevada, if we ever needed to expand that way. But we're actually getting ready to add a new veterinarian to our Southern California offering. So as soon as she is licensed and ready to go, we will be able to open up that sector as well, which would be so great because we get calls from all over the country. And I have a wonderful front-end staff who's able to either find them a veterinarian in their area or hopefully triage them, give them, okay, let's look at the water chemistry because they can obviously test that themselves and it's a set number. If it doesn't fall in this parameter, we're going to have to fix it. So getting them started like that goes a long way in making sure that even fish that aren't in our general service area can still get some help. Well, it clearly sounds like you've tapped into an area where there's a need for fish vets like yourself. Oh yes, absolutely. We need, we need more of them because we have many areas, I mean, even in our little niche in California that I just can't get to fast enough because I'm too busy seeing other clients. It would be great if we could, you know, have a little network with somebody in every state. So at least you have somebody in your, you know, veterinary licensed jurisdiction that can give you more help. Well, give me like three years. <laughs> great. What area do you want? I'll put a pin in it. Where there's no snow. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much half the country. So you'll be good. You'll be good. Well, that's great that you have moved so fast with this business and that people are starting to call you and recognize that. Like that's really important. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about some of the most common issues, diseases that you treat. Oh yeah, of course. Um, most common thing that I treat is terrible water chemistry. Um, again, that's going to really be the primary cause of a lot of secondary disease. So a lot of the times we'll get a call, Hey, I have a fish that's not eating. He's just kind of sitting at the bottom and you know, it's kind of that canary in a coal mine. Not all fish immune systems are going to be the same kind of robustness. So you're going to have one fish that's obviously weaker than the rest of the population. And that fish will be the one that gets sick first. Now it could be a parasite. It could be a bacterial infection. But a lot of the times we're looking primarily at the water chemistry obviously started this. So how do we fix that and make sure the fish will come through this on the other side? A lot of the times we get kind of random calls for different behaviors that people don't know are normal, especially during spawning season out here for koi. Unfortunately, it's very aggressive and the boys will chase the girls and we've seen female koi that get beat up lots of scrapes and we've had them actually jump out of ponds before so again that behavior is normal and there's really not much you can do about it except try to keep the boys and girls separate which nobody can do so 
it's a lot of trying to explain normal fish behavior. And especially again with the virus, everybody's staring at their fish way too much. And they're noticing things that they probably didn't notice before that are completely normal. And that's fine. But they're convinced in their mind that the fish is actually sick when they just haven't paid attention before. So how do you tell the difference between a male and a female koi fish? So a lot of the time, if it is spawning season, the girls are the ones being chased. The boys are doing the chasing. Female koi tend to be larger and rounder, but that's not necessarily to say you might just have a fat male. So usually what we'll do during spawning season, if I do take them out and put them in my exam tub, if you flip them over, the vent that's essentially the shoot for the urogenital system, if it's kind of puffed up, it's going to be a female. If it's all tucked in, it's going to be a boy. Worst comes to worst, I have an ultra sound that travels with me and I can just do a quick swipe on a fish and it's pretty easy to tell a male from a female provided that they are reproductively mature. If they're stunted in terrible water chemistry, not getting fed appropriately, unfortunately the testicles and the ovaries tend to look a little similar if they're not actively working on those reproductive functions. Interesting. And betas are sexually dimorphic, correct? Yes. So the males are the pretty colored ones with the long fins, and the girls tend to be of a brown coloration with shorter fins. What about a goldfish? Depending on how much they have been bred with some fancy varieties. Um, So it's very common for comet goldfish, so just the typical standard goldfish that you think of. The males will have these little tubercles that pop up on their operculums and the front of their pectoral fin. And that's only, again, if they're reproductively mature and interested in mating. And the, the females will have no of those little tubercles on them. Again, the females tend to be rounder and fatter, but if you're a fancy goldfish and you're already fat, it's impossible to tell the difference. (laughs) And I know that you have a lot of information on your website, Jesse, about koi, goldfish, betas, other really common fish that you treat. So if any of our listeners happen to own these fish, we'll post the link on there so that way you can go on and you you can look up for yourself and learn more about how to better take care of your fish. Yep. So our website is cafishvet.com, but so many people misspell it that we have also bought catfishvet.com. <laughs> it goes to the same site, but people just want to add that T. That's so funny. <laughs> just one of those things you got to do. <laughs> so we touched on this briefly earlier, but I really want to dive a little bit deeper because I know that there's a lot of contention right now about having veterinarians specifically for fish. And it's so critical to have vets for fish. So can you talk a little bit about your experience entering this field, how you're changing people's perceptions, and and what you want our listeners to know? Yes. So I'll put it in the phrase of a question that one of my colleagues likes to pose to people. All right. So you ask 100 random people on the street, if you have a sick fish, what do you do? And top three answers is going to be go Google it, go to the pet store, or flush it. And unfortunately, aquatic veterinarian doesn't even pass into a lot of people's heads. I was laughed at by other veterinarians when I was in veterinary school, when I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I get my jobs like, oh, that's so cute. You're so funny. Like, did you really spend $3,000 to wrap your cars? It's a joke. Well, no, it's not a joke. (laughs) But unfortunately, I've come to that point in my career where I kind of just have to laugh it off because I've been asked that question so many times. And I understand I am only one voice and I have tried to be 
as loud as I possibly can. I'm happy to talk to anyone who has any questions about aquatic veterinary medicine. Obviously, I try not, it, back in the days when I was doing a lot of flying, um, I try not to wear this because then I'm trapped in a very long conversation. So if you've ever sat next to me in an airplane, I've lied and said I've, I've been an accountant. But I probably shouldn't do that because, again, we want more people to be aware that aquatic veterinary medicine is a niche and it's a specialty. And I mean, even amongst other veterinarians, we are ridiculed, which has to stop. And really the only way we're gonna do that is again, just educating people through social media posts and doing podcasts like this and telling veterinary students that again, you can actually you know, be of so much benefit to a lot of owners. That's the one thing that we get told is like, I'm so glad we found you because we know so much more now. And again, since I'm doing so much education, it would be nice if they never had to call us again and you know, told their friends instead. But it's really important for anyone who knows, you know, anything about what aquatic veterinarians can do to make sure that they're heard and they're vocal. And yes, it sometimes takes some time to get past people's first impressions. But we have our YouTube channel that has a bunch of videos of me doing just standard veterinary procedures. And then we talk through a bunch of different aspects of fish health that unfortunately, if you're going to Google something, hopefully a veterinarian pops up first. And you also do a lot of public speaking to student groups and vet groups, correct? Yes. Again, this year has been, unfortunately, a lot of my talks have been canceled. But I, I am happy to speak to veterinary groups, non-veterinary groups. Unfortunately, I usually have to pay a little money. Um, but veterinary students, absolutely, I'm happy to work with you and give you just a quick Zoom presentation about whatever aspects you're looking for. A lot of people are looking for, okay, where do we go for training opportunities? And how do you work up a pet fish case? Like you, a fish walks into your office. What the heck are you supposed to do? So a lot of those we do, we do very, I do very frequently. So not any long summary, but in a short answer, a fish walks into your office. What do you do? <laughs> so obviously if a fish walks into your office, you're going to have to figure out how to handle it. A lot of the times, again, the capture and transport is going to stress that fish out and obviously they think they're going to be eaten any minute. So it's really important that you handle them in a calm environment. We use a lot of sedation just to make sure the fish isn't stressed out. Certainly if you're going to do any water chemistry testing, you have to make sure you have a separate sample because a little fish freaking out in a bucket is going to change some of the water chemistry. So again, many veterinary offices are completely capable of dealing with a fish. The only thing you need is a water test kit and drugs to sedate a fish. And then the rest of it you already have. What type of drugs do you use for fish? So the sedative I use is MS222, also known as tricane methane sulfonate. It has been used in aquaculture for decades. It's very safe. It's FDA approved. And I like it a little bit better than clove oil, which is eugenol. It is available over the counter. So, so is MS222 for that matter. But with the MS222, it's made the same way every time. So I know exactly how the fish will react to it rather than clove oil there you can make your own clove oil on youtube so so after we watch your your videos on youtube we'll just watch the clove oil videos sure let me know how that turns out <laughs> 
So for our veterinary students listening, you mentioned that obviously you, you'll offer to speak with them, but do you have any other tips or resources available for them to learn more specifically about fish medicine? So the best advice I can offer to veterinary students, because again, I understand a lot of veterinary schools do not have any kind of traditional fish program. So I went to Tufts University. I graduated in 2012. And Unfortunately, we got two hours on fish. I think we got three on marine mammals. And I was so bored with the second lecture of fish that I went to go study large animal, which I actually didn't know. We had one lab which featured our clinicians didn't actually know how to euthanize the fish. So they woke up like halfway through the lab, which was a little traumatizing for some of the other students who freaked out and ran out of the room. So unfortunately, a lot of veterinary programs need to be supplemented with, again, those summer programs you were talking about earlier. So I was very thankful to go to AquaVet, again, my second year, and I actually was able to do MarVet down in Grand Cayman right after that. During my fourth year clinical rotations, I mean, everybody has priorities as far as what they need to fit where, and I was more concerned about, okay, where is my externship time going to go so I can go out and actually see other aquatic veterinarians in action. So I was thankful enough to be accepted down to SeaWorld in Orlando. It was three weeks, and if you tell them that you want to do fish, they're like, go for it. We don't, they don't do a lot with the fish. It's left up to the aquarists. A lot of the veterinarians handle mostly the large birds, marine mammals, and they're very you know, cautious about having students work with them. But fish, I did my first solo enucleation, and the other vet just kind of stood in the corner and went, good job. Um, I did a lot of, of aquatic bird work there too, which was very interesting. I had some time to go to the Marine Mammal Center out here in California. Got to work, you know, with the other side of aquatic veterinary medicine, which is a lot of marine mammal work. And I actually got to go back to Mystic Aquarium, where I had worked as an undergraduate student and got to do five weeks of basically hanging out with my friends and, you know, seeing everything from the veterinary side of things. So that was really beneficial. And obviously Dr. Sweeney, who I met back in Aquavet, at Tufts, you're required to go out for two weeks to go work in private practice. So I called up Dr. Sweeney and was like, hey, can I come just hang out with you? And my, I mean, we could do small animals and exotics, but you know, if we have a fish case, that would be great. So I had, I had a great two weeks hanging out with her at her practice. And really, when you're a veterinary student, it's your time to kind of gather all those different components and put it in your brain and kind of spit out what you think is going to work. And if your first choice, second choice, third choice doesn't work, that's fine. You still have a veterinary degree. You can go off and do whatever, especially when you're early in your career. It doesn't matter if you, you know, spent a year in fish practice and or did a year in small animal. I mean, I, I'm seven years into fish. I'm, I'm pretty much set on that path which is fine by me, but. Now, does aquatic veterinary services take any fourth year students? So we do, um, we do take veterinary students. It's only in the summer months. Again, that's when we have the highest kind of rate of calls. During the spring and fall, it's not as consistent. So we, if you're gonna come, I wanna make sure that you see a lot. However, we were supposed to have students this summer that weren't able to come. So everything's kind of been pushed back a year and we have a wait list now for 20, 22. Well, so for anyone listening, good to keep in mind that, you know, for aquatic veterinary services, but honestly, any externship in the aquatic yes. field, anything, you have to apply early. Yes. Yep. Like years in advance, or at least it always helps to be like, Hey, 
I am very interested in aquatic medicine. I know I am not eligible for this internship, externship until next year, but I just want to make sure that you know how much I want to come work with you. Is that they'll remember that when it comes to be your year to apply. And I mean, I've evaluated dozens of student applications. And really the most important thing I can say is A, make sure that you know who, who you are sending that letter to. So I've had people send letters to me that say, start with dear sir. And obviously I'm not a dude and those get chucked out the window immediately. Like do your research beforehand, make sure you know who you're sending this to. And obviously make sure that you are actually interested in aquatic veterinary medicine. And you put that in your cover letter and it's not just like some random line on the bottom of your six page resume. Cause then it'll be like, okay, well you want to come work here, but you haven't really put in any effort or even mentioned why you want to come work with me. Like people who say I've done, you know, this aquatic program, this one, but I really want a perspective and private practice because I think I want to end up there. Those students are going to be the ones that we consider more highly than those like, yeah, you know, I just want some experience. I've done, you know, birds and gerbils and I want to see some fish. Well, that's very good information to keep in mind. Thank you. And stop really when you were saying your, your externships and I'm sitting here thinking like, literally that is my dream. Yeah. Get, get on their radar now since you're only a second year start, you know, if, uh, have you gotten to Aquavet? I probably not this summer. I was supposed to. Okay. (laughs) So if you do it next year, the most important thing that you get from those lectures is actually the people who teach them, they will give you their emails. So hold on to them. And, and ask them all sorts of annoying questions. Just make sure they're short and to the point. If I want to get into this program, who do I contact? If I want experience in this field, where should I look? You also have a children's book, right? I want to highlight that. Yes. So we actually have a children's book series. It's three books trying to teach children and families how to correctly bring a fish into their home. So it's called Boo and Bubbles. It is available on Amazon. We have readings. You can watch the book on our YouTube site. You don't even have to buy it. And essentially, the first book goes through bringing your, your fish home and how to kind of get them settled. The second one goes through water chemistry, maintenance, and my role as an aquatic veterinarian. And then the third, which I think every one of my sh- clients should be required to read, is how to bring a new fish into an established system and the importance of quarantine. It's intended for children um, ages about five to eight but I've given it, uh, we just give out copies to if there's a kid, you know, hanging out next to the pond while I'm working, who seems really interested, like, here, have a book, learn something, teach your parents how to take care of your fish. That's amazing. And you said boo and bubbles? Boo and bubbles, yes. Boo and bubbles. Well, clearly I know what I'm doing with the rest of my day today. (laughs) So as president of the American Association of Fish Veterinarians, do you have any meetings upcoming or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? So we were supposed to have an in-person meeting here in July, which obviously did not happen this year, but we have put together a virtual conference, which will be at the end of October. It will be two mornings spaced out. So we have a bunch of different speakers from all different aspects of aquatic veterinary medicine and aquaculture, federal, private practice, all of that. Certainly open to students and anyone who wants to attend. We also have an annual student scholarship that is available to students looking for travel funds for doing um, any work with aquatic veterinary medicine, fish specifically. And we'll make sure to post the link to the conference signup as well on our Twitter and Facebook. So you, so anyone who's listening has easier access as well. Great. Much appreciated. So Jesse, is there anything else you'd like to add before we end up today? No, unfortunately I have to, to get 
going. I have a little beta fish up in the East Bay who apparently has thin rot, which just means he has terrible water chemistry. We definitely don't want to keep you from the sick beta fish. So Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yes, thank you very much for, for having me. I enjoyed being on here and discussing all my different fun career influences in aquatic veterinary medicine. I'm sure there'll be a completely different story if you interview me in a couple of years. Well, we'll just have to do that. And before we close, let me introduce you to Species Spotlight, a special segment we'll have at the end of every episode of Aquadox, where we'll highlight a different animal that is classified as threatened or endangered on the IUCN Red List. To start us off today, I'd like to tell you about the Mardi Gras wrasse. The Mardi Gras wrasse is classified as endangered on the IUCN Red List. This species of wrasse is only found on the reefs in the Gulf of Mexico. It is mainly threatened by coral reef habitat loss, which predominantly occurs in this area due to sedimentation and pollution. It is also susceptible to predation by the invasive lionfish. While there are not currently any specific conservation measures for the Mardi Gras wrasse, its distribution lies mainly within marine protected areas. It is recommended, however, that reducing pollution and sedimentation can help the species survive into the future. And that's going to do it for this first episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Jesse Sanders for being on the show today, as well as give a huge thank you to all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you here next time on Aquadox.